Father, we thank you for our friendships here and the fun we can have, and we thank you for Gordy. And I pray, Lord, that as he speaks this morning, that he would hear your voice, that your peace would be on him, that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Christy. with where you are uh, because I've talked to a lot of people from churches a lot bigger than ours and often when kids reach kind of intermediate age they begin to stay into the teaching time in the service so we'd like to just experiment with that I think it's an important part of your discipleship and and growing the other thing I want to say is we get a lot of feedback from visitors and one of the most common uh, thing, thing, uh, things I've been hearing lately is the surprise that we're going through the Old Testament. And, I, uh, and, and it's a good surprise. It's not a bad surprise. But I, I, that surprised me because um, uh, it is a good section of the Bible. And uh, uh, if you think about it, it's the only Bible that Jesus had. It's the only Bible. Cutting out? Yeah. How's that? And just use this. So the, old, the New Testament is Jesus and the apostles reflecting on the life of Jesus in light of the Old Testament and the, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Exodus is part of our story. It's part of the journey of the people of God. And we are uh, exploring... Uh, the, earth, the first part of it was uh, a story of liberation. The fact that this, this story is our story. And um, liberation is not just spiritual, but economic and social. In, and it affects every area of our lives, relational. It affects creation. So it's our story. And now we're moving into this part of the story where the, the people of God have been delivered from slavery and they're now in the desert. And why is there this long period between deliverance and the promised land in the desert? Why is that? So we've been kind of walking through that. In today's lesson, I want to talk about the art of giving away. And I think probably the best example or illustration I could give of what we're getting at here is a story about when I was growing up playing basketball. I, I, play, I began to play at a very early age. Unlike a lot of Canadians who start with hockey, basketball was very early in my journey. And the reason was my dad was a school principal, and so he would sneak me into the gym 
in those cold winter nights in northern Alberta. And uh, uh, I, I would just shoot baskets all by myself uh, over and over again. And I got pretty good pretty young. And um, I tried to hang from the rafters in my house so that I could grow. And so just think how short I would have been if I hadn't, hadn't done that. And uh, so because I played alone, it was difficult for me to learn how to pass. A lot of my, I had a lot of shooting skills, dribbling skills. I was fast, but I didn't know how to play in a team. And, uh, but I experienced, I experienced the other end of that, the other side of that, when I was in grade 10. And as a freshman in high school, I made it to the to the senior team. I was, and I played a lot, not, not like I would have if I'd have been a senior, but I, I still played a lot. And I remember we were in this final in our division to, to see who would go to the zones. And we'd, we'd won all our other games and we were in the final and we were actually favored to win uh, this final game to go to the, the zone championships. Uh, but we had this guy who was basically a superstar, very well-built athletic guy, grade 12, and great shooter, very tall, uh, rebounded and played center and all that. So he was our team high scorer. And the game got really close and tense near the end. And it's like he panicked. And uh, he just started trying to take things into his own hands. And um, he stopped passing. And I still remember vividly, there was just seconds left in the game. I think we were down by one point. We just needed one basket and we could have won the game. And he was out about 20 uh, feet, you know, where the free throw line is about 15, right? So he was about 20 feet out. He had two guys hanging on him because he was such a great player. The other team was double teaming him. And he, was, he had two guys hanging on him, I'm sh uh, maybe more. I mean, he, he just, he was scoring baskets and I was all alone under the basket. I could have just had a free layup and we, we would have won the game. And 99.5% I would have scored it. So I'm screaming at him, Marcel, Marcel, I'm wide open. Nobody was on me. Nobody was watching me. And he took a jump shot and tried to take it from 20 feet and missed the shot. And we lost the game. And I was so angry. I was so angry, I just tears were streaming down my cheeks. And I said, what were you thinking? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He says, you don't know how to score. And he kind of just dis dismissed me and walked away. So the next year, he, he graduated and I went on to grade 11. And the next year, I proved him wrong. I was the team high scorer. And, won the, the, and I was one of the top division scorers for the whole league that year as well, scoring, averaging 20 points a game. So his assessment of me was wrong. And because of that, he didn't pass the ball. He didn't give it away to me. And to me, that's a picture of what Moses is going through in this story. Moses uh, uh, was having to take a risk, just like this senior basketball player was, was having to take a, a risk. But sometimes it's so hard to give away. Because we can think... We're not sure if we can trust this person that we're passing the ball to. And we feel like we can do it so much better. But we end up causing the, costing the team as a result. And Moses was like this. He was a superstar. Moses 
had never been a slave like the people in Egypt. Did you realize? Did you think of that? He's ne he never was. He was the only one of the whole nation that had not been a slave. He had grown up in Pharaoh's house. He was a gifted, articulate man who encountered God in the desert at the burning bush, and he knew God's voice, and he was very charismatic, and seeing God's power work through his life. And I have found that sometimes having a great anointing on your life and having great charisma can be very costly. It can actually be uh, an Achilles heel and, uh, rather than a blessing if it's not handled properly. And that's what happened with Moses, is he was a very gifted, powerful leader, but his assessment of the people of God were, they're just a bunch of slaves. They've never taken responsibility. All their life, they've lived under the lash of the whip, right? They've been told what to do. They've never managed themselves. They've never taken responsibility. So how can I pass the ball to them? How can I involve them in helping me in leadership? Will their advice be reliable? I've got to do it all. That was Moses' perspective. So just a reminder is that they came out of Egypt here, kind of out of this area, and the, the route to the promised land is this way, but they didn't go as the crow flies, did they? They went this way. God says, no, you're going to go this way. So they're doing this massive detour through the desert. And remember, we talked about how this story of the uh, of the bitter waters of Mara that happened there. And then the story, stories of the manna, the quail, and then later on the, the water out of the rock. Now we're almost at Mount Sinai today when there's this great, big, beautiful, happy reunion that occurs, a family reunion. Because through all this time, where's Moses' wife and children? He has two sons. Do you remember their names? Eliezer and... Gershom, yeah? And where are they? Where's Moses' family? Does anybody remember? About right here, when he, this is Midian, where he, he uh, ran away from Egypt and hid out with his father-in-law, Jethro. When God called him to go back to Egypt, he left his, he was on his way, and remember they had that kind of Kind of difficult experience with their son's circumcision. Remember? In Egypt's culture, they were supposed to... Arabian culture, they circumcised, but they waited till the child was in their... Almost um, ready to be a, uh, an adult. It was almost a rite of passage as an adult, which obviously is a lot more painful. And so Moses was, intro was introducing something radical from Yahweh, from God, that the child would be circumcised much more humanely as a baby. And his wife got very upset about it, so she went back, it seems, at that point with their two children. And then when God does this incredible miracle, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brings his daughter, Moses' wife, and the two, his two grandsons, and they meet Moses here. And that's what the first part of our chapter is about. We won't read it, but it's a very beautiful, happy reunion, and they celebrate. They have a meal together, and Moses just tells stories of all that God has done, but then something went terribly wrong. How many have ever had a family reunion where something went terribly wrong? Come on, be honest, right? 
And something went terribly wrong here as well. So let's look at our text. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was, was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? I so enjoyed those stories you were telling me last night over dinner. When are you coming home for dinner? Isn't this a familiar story where ministry crowds out your family? Where serving and helping actually becomes toxic? I love that bulletin blooper. Remember the one I told you about? Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> That's kind of what's happening here. Is Jethro, is, is, he's saying to Moses, what are you accomplishing here? But I love the fact that he's a wise father-in-law. There's a few unwise ones around. But he's a wise father-in-law. And he, he, he approaches Moses with a question. Let me give you some advice. Or, sorry, let, let, me, let me rephrase that. Can I give you some advice? Mo, Jethro asks it with a, he starts it with a question. He says, can I, can I ask you a question? What's going on here? So that, that's a good, good uh, kind of uh, principle for offering advice is you, is you ask. And you request it. You inquire. And, and so Jethro's posture is one of, of inquiry. But I think he's a little bit worried. Because he's just entrusted his daughter and his grandsons back to this guy. And he wants to know, are you going to take care of my, my daughter? Are you going to take care of my grandsons? That's a legitimate concern. And so Moses answered him, and he said, Because the people come to me to seek God's will, whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Now, as I said earlier, charisma and experience, the blessing of God in your life can become a curse when God anoints you. Because the problem is, people want to come to you for help. They want to get ministry from you. They don't want ministry from some unknown person that's never been tried and they haven't seen his picture in the newspaper. They don't want somebody greener. I remember John Wimber telling the story. John Wimber had a, uh, one of the early leaders of the vineyard had a real um, philosophy of giving ministry away in a way that uh, was just exemplary. And what he would do is he would be invited. You remember God anointed him very powerfully. And so he was invited to these amazing conferences all over the world, right? South America, England, Europe. He would go to South Africa and, Asia, you know, um, different parts of Asia, Australia. But he'd always, he refused to go without some, some uh, interns, people who were being mentored to do what he did. And he, you, know, you know the basic discipleship circuit, right? You know how it works? I do it, you watch. You do it, I watch. 
Then there's supervision and you repeat cycle. It's a very simple thing. So Wimber wanted to do this, right? So he goes to South Africa. I know it happened in other places too, but he goes to South Africa and Gary Best, our national director, friend of ours, um, was one of these people. And without warning, like within a few hours, he would say to one of these young guys, it was usually guys at that time, I'm sure women could have done it too, but he would say to them, hey, you're on tonight. <laughs> you're preaching. You're going to lead the service, right? And of course, Gary, Gary and others would just say it scared them, you know, just scared them crazy, right? But then the, the hosts of the event would find out and they would be really upset. And they would say, we didn't invite Gary. Who's Gary? Who's Gordy? Gordy who? And, well, John would say, well, I, you know, this is my ministry. My ministry is to give this away. I'm not, I don't want to hog this. I don't want to be a ball hog. And they'd say, well, no, sorry, we, we paid all this money so that you, people are coming to hear you. He said, that's okay, okay, all right, we'll go home. Oh, no, 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 that's okay then. Like he literally would take that kind of stand. And he'd say, unless you let me do this, we're going home. And I think that had a powerful influence. And this message is actually part of next Sunday's uh, Everybody Gets to Play. That, that had a powerful influence on that saying. Everybody gets to play. I, it just breaks my heart if I go to a soccer game and I get up early and I have to get my caffeine fix and I go and watch my grandson play and he just sits on the bench. That just breaks my heart. doesn't happen very often, but once in a while I when how come he's on the bench so much? Do you imagine how God must feel when he sees us sitting on the bench? Breaks his heart, right? So he... Then they would change your mind. And when we don't hold the line like Wimber did, well, let's say that Wimber said, okay, I'll go with what you said. What, what happens is an over-functioning in the body. And when you have an over-functioning of a member of the body, what happens to the rest of the body? There's an under-functioning, which causes a dysfunction in the body. When I was five years old, six years old, I began to realize I couldn't see very good out of one eye. And I went to the eye doctor and he said, you have a lazy eye. Now, how do you think they fix that lazy eye? They got a patch and they put, it over, they, the, they put it over the good eye because the problem was not actually the lazy eye. It was an over-functioning eye. That was a good eye. So they put a patch and for grade one, I looked like a pirate walking around school with my big patch. Oh, I'll tell you, I was so proud of that patch. Not... And, uh, yeah, it was actually very traumatic. I'm still, I'm, that's why I'm going to the trauma seminar uh, in a few weeks. So, so what was Moses' issue? His Moses was, what can they do? I mean, they're nothing but slaves. Their grandparents and parents before them were slaves. And essentially, Moses is dealing with a particular kind of unbelief. It's the kind of unbelief that Jesus had to deal with when he came to his hometown. It says, remember where it says that Jesus, because of unbelief, it says that he could not do many mighty works. 
It always fascinates me that he said could not. Doesn't say would not, he couldn't. He couldn't do mighty works. And I call it the hometown syndrome. It's a particular kind of unbelief that limits God in other people. That, that re refuses to see the diamond in the rough, the potential in someone all they saw was this snotty-nosed little kid that used to run around Nazareth who was, who was Mary's uh, son, the carpenter's son, and they knew his sisters and brothers, and they said, we know this kid, and they limited God. And that's the kind of unbelief that was limiting Moses, and it ended up in a, in a mediator complex. You know what the mediator complex is? Is you, you have to go through me to get to God. It's, it's the mediator complex. It's not the, the way the body of Christ was meant to be. We were all called to be priests. We'll talk about this more next week. But God is already challenging this nation of slaves that, that, hey, it's time to grow up. It's time to stop just being told what to do all the time. It's time to st start self-managing uh, and rule your own heart and life so that you can take responsibility and give responsibility to others. And it produces an Elijah syndrome. Remember Elijah was in the cave and he says, God, I'm really upset. And God says, why? He says, ah, there's nobody but me. I'm the only one. Listen, the kingdom of God is never that way. There is no one who's indispensable. And God said, uh, Elijah, there's 7,000 others who've not bowed their knee to Baal. So this kind of syndrome comes from the mediator complex. So Moses' father-in-law replies, and he says, what you are doing is not good. This word not good is the same word from Genesis chapter 2 when it says, and God said, it is not good that man be alone. It wasn't just talking about everybody should be married. In fact, it's not talking about everybody being married. It's talking about the fact that we were created for community. It's not good that you pastor alone that you teach Sunday school alone, that you lead worship alone, that you run the welcome table alone. I'm just using Sunday morning as an example, but it applies to all of life. It's not good that you lead a home group alone. God created us for companionship and community. And um, we're social beings. It's, it's amazing for me to watch what's happening with our kids' church because since they introduced the orange, the, the preschool workers and the, and the primaries and even intermediates sometimes are all working together. I, I, um, I, through a strange set of circumstances, ended up at, a, at one of their meetings on Thursday night. We won't go into detail how that happened, but... It was so exciting to see these people all gathered and they're praying for our kids. And you can feel the sense of synergy and team. And it's because they've come together. Remember that illustration about the draft horse? I've told you guys this so many times. I'm like the old guy that keeps telling the same story over and over again. But you remember where the, 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 they have these draft horses that pull great amounts of weight and you, you have one draft horse and they can pull a ton, 2,000 pounds of weight. How, if you add one draft horse, how much weight can they pull together? You'd think one plus one equals two, right? So 2,000 plus 2,000 is 4,000. That seems to be the logical answer. How many can they pull? 20,000 pounds, two of them. So one, 10 times through synergy through relationship. And I think those horses just kind of, they're enjoying the company and hanging out and 
hey, we got nothing else to do. We might as well just catch up. So how's your kids? You know, you know what I mean? Like they're. So um, synergy. So let's read on verse 18. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. The actual Hebrew is you will wear yourself out and the people with you. There's been a number of times where I've had to walk into churches where the pastors had a burnout. And as I look at the church, the whole church is burned out. It, wasn't just, it was a system, systemic problem. And the word for wear out is literally fall like a leaf from a tree. It's like a leaf that's lost its nurture. It's no longer, you know, when Dean was preaching a few weeks ago and he talked about how that, that uh, because he's, he's serving so much, sometimes he doesn't receive or be, he's not aware of the presence of God. And I had this picture of a, of a cup that you're cleaning. And you're so busy cleaning the cup, you never put water in it and drink. And some of us, we serve so much, we're just always cleaning the cup and getting the cup ready to receive and God says, don't forget to drink the water that I have for you. And so these le the leaf becomes dry and it falls off the tree. And remarkably, Jethro, the father-in-law, he includes the people that they, they also will start falling like leaves. The, these, the message, uh, Eugene Peterson's message says, you will burn out and all the people will burn out with you. More than once I've heard about this happening. And you need to learn to become a team player because the universe is led by a team. Yeah? The universe is led by a team. And God said, let us create humanity in our image. But why do we resist this? Think about it. Why do we resist team? Why do we resist doing it? I, 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 I recall the porcupine illustration, how that human beings are like porcupines on a cold winter's night, right? It, we, 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 we know that it's cold out there, so we huddle together to get warm, but we're so pokey that we go out and freeze to death in the dark. And there is a price to team. It means working together. It means being in right relationship. It means emotionally healthy relationships, the, the next course we're going to offer in a few months, which comes out of emotionally healthy spirituality. But you don't get there just by a course. You don't get there by just signing a certificate. It's hard work, right? It's forgiving and, oh, gosh, we got to do this again. Got to have a hard conversation, right? It's, it's, it's not, it's, it's hard. So sometimes we just prefer to go it alone. Just that. It's just easier to do it myself. And, and there's another um, aspect of this word wear out from the Hebrew. And in one, one of the, the definitions they give in the Hebrew is that you will be foolish. How many know you tend to make more stupid decisions when you're tired? How many have ever heard of compassion fatigue? So I've heard of pastors who've deliberately committed adultery because they were so tired, they didn't know how else to stop. And at least with the church discipline, they had a break. That's desperate, man. 
So we are a culture, and this is part of the lessons in the desert. Remember, we talked about the pace. It's unhurried. They were so used to being driven by a slave driver. They didn't know how to go slow, but they had to go the pace of the wheelchairs and the elderly and the children. They had to go at an unhurried pace. And then they learned the weekend. They learned this thing called the weekend. They never had a thing called a week before. And through the manna, God disciplined and discipled them on how to have a weekend and how to stop. So this is all about pacing and stopping and learning not, that you're not a slave anymore. And you have rhythms. And so uh, it, you learn to budget not only time and energy, but you budget virtue. Because even patience runs out. It does. Patience runs out. Compassion runs out. So how are you budgeting your patience and your compassion? Maybe you're not as terrible a person as you thought you were when you reacted that way the other day because you've got your tank is empty. So that's what this is about here. So let's read on. Listen now, verse 19. It's the same word, Shema. Remember where it says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Have ears. Be attentive. What's going on? This is our theme for this year. Being more attentive and present and listening to the voice of God and to one another and to our hearts. Listen now to me. Listen to your father-in-law. And I'll give you some advice. Now that I've asked a few questions, can I make kidding? And may God be with you. In other words, you're not doing this on your own. You must be the people's representative before God. Bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions. And show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men. It's patriarchal back then. Could have been women in our day. Select capable men from all the people. Men who fear God. Trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So first of all, Jethro says, stay in your gift. The Natural Church Development Program, which came out of Switzerland, by the way, Leone, uh, we went through it as a church a few years ago, and one, the, one of the greatest weaknesses of churches like ours, charismatic churches are, is that is that people do not function in areas of ministry that match their spiritual gifts. So we've been trying, trying to address that. We've offered courses. And, but it's very easy to get away from that. And they, and they identified that the greatest culprit is the pastor. The pastor is usually the one, especially in smaller churches, that feels they have to do everything. So they end up functioning outside of their gift. And what they found was is that when leaders function outside their gifts, so does everybody else. That's what happens. So, so Jethro says to Moses, the first thing you can do for everybody is stay in your gift. The greatest thing that I can do for you as a church is to stay in my gift. Now, there's always chores, and, and I'm not going to see a piece of paper on the, on the ground, a garbage, and, and not pick it up because it's not my gift. That's everybody's gift. That's chores. Okay, we all wash the dishes. We all, I'm, I'm not talking about that. Some people cop out and say, well, that's not my spiritual gift. I'm not talking about that. There's always chores, right? So, but they should never dominate what we're doing. They should never predominate your schedule and your energy. They should be secondary, right? So, so keep that in mind in, in how you invest your time. Secondly, uh, uh, select people. Take a risk. Pass the ball to whom you can entrust responsibility. And let me say this. I have never asked 
somebody into to more leadership or responsibility who feels ready. Very rarely do they feel ready. And, and when they really feel gung-ho, I get nervous. Um, and usually when God lays somebody on my heart to ask, or our heart as a leadership team, to invite into leadership or more responsibility, we always say, well, are they really ready? They got this going. They got this, oh my, you know, this is going on in their life. So there's always a sense of measured risk. I don't think you should be careless about it. Remember, Jesus spent a night in prayer before he selected his disciples. But Je Jethro says, Moses, start praying and looking for people you can pass the ball to. And I want to say that to every one of you that are involved today in various aspects of ministry in the church. Look for people you can pass the ball to. And pray for that. I know it's not easy. Sometimes it feels like no, you feel like Moses. You feel like Elijah. Nobody cares about this except me. It's a lie. It is a lie. But Jesus said, first pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers. And then keep your eyes open for people to partner with, to yoke with, to, to pull the weight with. And then thirdly, he says, organize to beat the devil. In other words, form small groups. Uh, we went through a book a few years ago called The Two Wings of the Bird. And, and the book used the church, the metaphor of a bird, to illustrate the church. And the two wings of the bird were large group meetings or congregational gatherings like tonight, today, but also small group meetings. So one wing was small group accountability, and one, one wing was where the where there's teaching and worship, where together we come. And then in small groups, we work it out. And that's where discipleship has always been the healthiest. I think the fall was an incredibly healthy season for us because a good section of our church were involved in weekly accountability and prayer and getting support. And, and you know, it wasn't perfect, and the small groups are never perfect. But I really believe it's critical for passing the ball. I think a lot of that happens, and Jesus modeled that in his own life and ministry. So uh, stay in your gift, select leaders that you can pass the ball to, and organize into small groups. And those small groups can look like all kinds, just like snowflakes. There's no two that are the same, but there's still an essential uh, aspect of accountability and being known in those groups. So verse 18, uh, uh, verse 22, have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide for themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. They will flourish and you, Moses, will finish well rather than finish badly. Verse 24, and so Moses listened to his father-in-law, very rare case of this, and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided for themselves. So what was it? Uh, I think they were almost at 2 million people right now, plus horses and donkeys. And, wow. So somehow they organized that every person was covered and taken care of. What if we divided up our church so that everybody had an elder or somebody assigned to them and vice versa? 
I want to dream a little bit with you about this as they close today. When Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, finally the guy's gone. Jethro returned, Jethro returned to, his father, to his own country. That's tongue-in-cheek. I didn't mean that. Community and giving away. I want to challenge you about this. So you have Jethro, and Moses receives from him. So I want to ask you, who are you receiving from in your life? Who is mentoring you? Who speaks into your life? Who has authority to, to be present to you? And that could be more than one person, but we all need that in our lives. Yes, we get it from God, but we need people in our lives who um, are, are, are that, that Jethro to us. Uh, another example of this is Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy. Or if you will, ladies, Lois, Eunice, and Timothy. Lois was his grandma. Eunice was his mom. And then Timothy came along. So he had a spiritual heritage from the women in his life as well. Beautiful. But my question is, who is your Paul today? Who's a Paul in your life? Or, if you will, who's a Lois in your life? Who's a Barnabas in your life? That's peers. That's people who walk alongside of you. It's those yoke fellows or yoke cisterns, right, that walk alongside of you and, and, and share the load and you work together. The, the Pauls are a little bit farther ahead of you. Not so far you can't see them, but a little bit farther ahead. Far, far enough, close enough, they can still turn around and say, are you doing okay? Right? We all need that. We need fathers and mothers in our lives that are a little bit ahead of us and turn around and say, you can do this. I'm doing it. You can do it too. Just, just walk. Just walk this way. And finally, who are you pouring into? Who are you mentoring? Who are you discipling? If you're a Sunday school teacher, it's not just those kids, but it's who are you working with, with those kids, as our kids' church are beautifully modeling now. I, I just love what they're doing down there. It's beautiful synergy and, and energy. To me, this is really important because if we don't do this, we will die out. It, it will, we will fade spiritually, numerically. In, in every way, we will fade. We need to be intentional about this. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to challenge us with is how are you being, paying attention to rhythms? I got a call from, it's really cute. Kenny, Kenny's not here today, but I got a call from him a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and, and the, the situation was that he, he was on... Like, you know, he does the bells, and he does the lift, and he does the coffee, and he does the sound, and he helps me on the gym bay. And the schedule, nobody had kind of overseen the whole schedule and seen it, and he was on every Sunday. He was doing something every Sunday. So, bless his heart, he told me about it. He said, Gordy, I, I, there's sometimes I just want to drink out of the cup. I don't always want to be cleaning the cup. He didn't use that language, but I've used it today. That's basically what his heart was saying. So I said, Kenny, well, uh, how could we organize it so that you're not always on? So we talked to Sherry, and we talked to, to I, I, I can't remember who else we talked to, but we, we, some of the things he just does, just does because he does them in the gym bay, so that's fine. But I wanted to make sure that he was doing, he was having Sundays where he could just receive. 
It's what Dean was talking about a few weeks ago. Just having Sundays where you can just take a drink and, and not always be on. And I think that's really, really important for everybody in our church. I'm really concerned about Mark and Lynn. I'm concerned about Sherry and just different ones of you that I see that are always on. And what I'm going to talk to our leadership about and our new pastoral assistant whenever they come is we are going to work hard to make sure people have rhythms of being on. It's like breathe in, breathe out. Heart pumps blood, the heart retracts, right? That's just the way God, we have the seasons, and we need to work in those seasons. And did you know that when I was hired back in 1996, I was ordered by the board every uh, two months to be away for a Sunday? I haven't done that, and I'm sorry, because it hasn't modeled for you what rhythms are. So these are some of the challenges that I want to leave you with today, is but can you think about who's your Barnabas, who's your Paul, who's your Timothy, who's your Lois, who's your Eunice, um, who's your Lydia? Beautiful images in the, in the New Testament. So the, testim the desert paradoxically challenges our tendency to isolate. It's ironic, isn't it? You think of the desert as a place where you go to be isolated. But it's actually the opposite. The, the desert fathers and mothers created these monastic communities that spread throughout Europe in the desert. Because as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, those who do not know how to be alone cannot be in community. And those who cannot be in community do not, cannot really be alone. We're in the image of God, the triune God. We're made to be social, and yet you, you have individuality and uniqueness, a unique face and voice and fingerprints that no one else can reproduce. So the desert challenges our tendencies to isolate, drawing us into healthy interdependence community where we can receive and give away within God's rhythms of grace. So in the opening illustration, I talked about playing basketball. Do you identify more with me screaming under the basket to be past the ball? Or are you the person who's got the ball and you find it hard to give away? Think about that and have somebody pray with you about that. Secondly, who is or could be a Jethro or a Paul or a Moses in your life? Who could be a mentor? Who could be a peer, a, a, a Barnabas? Who could be a disciple? I think all three relationships are important in our lives. I've tried to, tried to keep those. I always have a Paul. I always have somebody a little bit ahead of me. And I'm just, you know, spiritual director, coaches. I have an overseer in the vineyard. We make sure we have that kind of covering. Then my, I feel like my, our leadership team is like our peer, my peers working with. Sometimes I submit to them as, as mentors and to their authority. I think it's really important to do it in a local setting. And I, I'm looking for people to pass the ball to. And even as we're doing our pastoral assistant search, please pray. Because I've always seen the pastoral assistant position as an opportunity to shape people to, and, and be shaped by them. You think of Patrick and Alec and Marcus years ago. They, they were shaped by their time with us, but they shaped us. It was mutual. And I always feel I learned from the young generation. I learned so much. So it's not just for them. It's for me that I get the benefit of. And in light of point two, what might God's invitation be with you? So let's pray. Hmm. 
Father, as I confessed with the prayer team before the service, this is not something I feel I've done very well. But I know it's really on your heart. It's really important. And uh, take my tendencies to be an introvert and often prefer to work on my own, which is a blessing for some aspects of my life. But God, it's time to pass the ball. It's really time to pass the ball. And to be a team and to deal with these, this fatigue and weariness that I know not only myself but many, especially in our core uh, volunteers and leaders are feeling. Lord, would you teach us and mentor us in how to implement the Jethro Principle. Lord, it's important to clean the cup and prepare it, but may we not forget to drink the water that you've provided. So we have about 15 minutes before kids need to be signed out. I just really want to use this space just to let the Holy Spirit minister and Maybe you could, I feel, let me just say, I'm feeling some words right now. And one word I'm feeling is that there are people who've been hurt by aspects of this at different points in your life. Either you were not trusted, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I think, they're, they're, I think trust is measured and it, it, and it has to be done responsibly. I don't think, there's a difference between delegating and dumping. And so I think it's really important that when someone's brought in that they're done, they're delegated in a way that's, that's done responsibly, that they're, they're given good training and orientation. They're not just left alone to do something. I think there's been some hurt there, both within our church and, and from other places. And I think there's some who've tried to pass the ball and the person dropped the ball. And you've, you feel... You just really feel afraid to try again, to pass that ball. You know, so Marcel didn't pass me the ball, so he was the goat. If he'd have passed me the ball under the basket and I missed the layup, then I would have been the goat. So, you know, he missed the opportunity to make me the goat. But I'm saying that a little bit tongue in cheek because I think there's an aspect of team where you share the victory and you share the struggle. I think that's really important. That's where you grow. You grow through failure. My grandson went through a, season, a losing spell with his soccer team, and I told him that the, the times in sports that I learned the most were my losing spells, where I just kept, you know, I used to play, some of you have heard me tell this story. I used to play this guy. He was a semi-pro. He used to play university ball, and he would kick my butt. Ten nothing. We'd play this one-on-one. -on -one. He just, he, and he showed me no mercy. And I thought I was doing so horrible. But by the time I got to that grade 11 year, I was sometimes beating him. Not all the time, but I sometimes beat him. 
And it's because he didn't let up. He believed in me. And I feel we need that in the church. We need that kind of, hey, I believe in you. You can, you can do this. And, and you can even do better, not in a discouraging way. I, I, don't, I, don't, I think sometimes people need to be told they can do better because they don't really believe they can. And so they settle for, for second best. You can do better. But it's, it's because of who you are. It's not because you're under some performance grid or being evaluated that way. But I'd love to see about 100 churches like ours through Vancouver. And that won't happen unless we learn to give the ball away, pass the ball. They don't all need to look like us. They might be around Circle Church on Saturday night with First Nations people with a talking stick. One will look like that. Maybe one will be more of a young adult's, you know, louder music or something. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you teach us how to give it away? Would you help us to pass the ball to the younger generation, to those who are coming after us, to trust them, to trust you. It's about trusting you in them. It's about trusting God. It's about not limiting God. Lord, would you renew that vision, the vision of Wimber, to give it away. And give us a generous heart, a generous spirit to create space, to entrust your kingdom to other people and share the victory together. So I bless you to do that, my dear ones, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to receive prayer into some of these things, turn to a friend, trusted friend, have them pray for you. If you don't know who to ask, feel free to come and just sit here at the front. And we'll pray with you or stand here at the front. And there's coffee and incredible snacks, courtesy of Nate and Kate. And Joanna, thank you. Awesome. Love you. Have a good day. Have a good week.